You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, I sit down with Eric Espinoza, who is a serial entrepreneur with a passion for helping CEOs and small business owners succeed. He is the founder of Venture Validator, which can help you find product market fit so you don't waste thousands of dollars or months of your time building the wrong solution. He is also the founder of Coconut VA, which is a virtual assistant staffing agency that can help you take back your evenings, weekends, and vacation by outsourcing. On today's show, we talk about how do most startups find or look for product market fit? How do you see the university system adapting to better fit the needs of the current startup ecosystem? What items can a startup use an outsourced team for? And how do you see the future of constructing a startup team? This and much more today's episode. So let's get started. Enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. All right, I'm very excited about today's episode. I'm here with Eric Espinoza. Now, Eric was introduced to me by Sam Wong. As our listeners know, Sam has been interviewed on this show multiple times. He's given such fabulous advice to our audience that entrepreneurs from around the world have actually emailed me and said, thank you. I've implemented this information and it got me where I wanted to go. Eric, sorry to build you up a little bit, but I know this is going to be a great episode. So Eric, thank you for taking the time today to be on the Silicon Valley podcast. Awesome. Thanks a lot for having me, Sean. I'm really excited. Now, your background is very interesting, but (laughs) I don't want to go into the details. I want you to say it. Can you give us a little bit of your history up until this point? Yeah, it's, it's been crazy. Entrepreneurship's in my blood. That's just what I've always known that I've, I've wanted to do. And I started out as at BYU doing startups in their competition series. And of course, I had stupid ideas in the beginning that I thought were going to be unicorns. I think my, my first one that I spent a lot of time and money on was a double dating app. And I look at it now, I'm like, wow, that was so dumb. But that was a really good first intro into startups and in, into app building and whatnot. I, I really learned quite quickly and I ended up winning BYU's competition. It was like, I don't know, maybe 40 people all been working on their startups for over a year. Here I was, I had a startup that I started 30 days before and it was an expiration date barcode add-on business that would help grocery stores identify what product was in each batch so that they could know if something's about to expire and they could discount automatically without having to go put sticker tags and everything. So I came up with this idea. I ended up winning this competition. I got networked to so many CEOs at trade shows, really just jump-started the, I'd say more of the hype for it. And that's where I got a lot of investment offers. I got $500,000, $650,000. I won, I think, $25,000 in a couple of competitions. But I knew that wasn't validation, that winning competitions, that is, that's hype. That is other people believing the Kool-Aid that you just drank and, and they're drinking that too, but you should never drink your own Kool-Aid. And so I put hold on everything. I said, let me go validate this truly. Um, I've made this mistake before within probably about a month and a half, I completely invalidated the idea. There were some things that I could not get past. And so that put me in a really unique position where I was a college student I had $20,000 left, but no startup to spend it on. And I then had to figure out what was going to spend this money on. So you learned a lot from that first situation (laughs) about, it sounds like validating an idea. How should a startup from scratch to something, how should they go about validating it? 
How should they go about building that initial team to execute? Can you give us a roadmap for someone to follow? Sure. If you look at why do startups fail, the number one reason is because of no market need. That's really funny if you think about it. Every entrepreneur, they inherently believe the market needs their product, but that's usually because they need their product and they think, oh, other people are like me. Entrepreneurs are crazy. It is absolutely insane for you to go quit your job, to go put all of your money, to go get your family to put their money into your startup and go work 80 hours a week for no salary. We're just odd ducks. And to expect the market to be like us is quite unreal. That's the very first thing you should go check. Is there a market need? And, and how can I quantify that? Getting that into a framework, after I had invalidated my barcode startup, I started testing that. And Professor Gary Rhodes, he was amazing PhD professor, a seven-time entrepreneur at BYU. He had created this system called the Wow Factor Scale, where you could actually run a focus group and predict with pretty good accuracy if there was a market need. And it's fairly simple. You get eight to 12 people in a room, you pitch the product in a very specific way, and you ask them on a scale of one to 10, what is the wow factor for this product? Where one is, uh, I wouldn't buy that. And 10 is, wow, here's my credit card. I want to buy that right now. And I, I took this concept and I said, okay, I've got $20,000. I've got dozens of startup ideas. I want to work on the best idea, not just a idea. So what one has the most potential? I started running these focus groups and it's actually, I don't know, it sounds so simple. Oh, you're just asking people on a scale of one to 10. But if you get the right people, it's actually really cool what you can learn. If people rate under a five, your idea is trash. I mean, either that, or you need to abandon your market. There are very few times where you just go to a completely different market. You can find a higher score. But what, what you find is that people don't give eight, nines, and tens out very often because most products aren't remarkable. They're not, they don't have a wow factor. Most people are in that five to seven and a half range. And what we learn though, is that if we ask those people who say, give you a six and a half, we say, okay, what do you not like about it? What would you change about this idea? There's two types of people. The ones that will list all of these ideas for how you can fix it. And you then say, okay, if I were to implement that, what's the new wow factor? They'll say, oh, it's still six and a half. Or maybe they'll move up to a seven. It's charity point. And then there's those people who move up to an eight, nine, or 10. And the funny thing I learned through doing like focus groups is the people who give you a low score, but don't move up the marker that much, those are the most loudest, most vocal people who are most passionate about all the things you need to change in your startup, yet they're never going to be your customer, even if you made all those changes. So I just, I'd done dozens of these and I realized, okay, here's a system here that we can use, but focus groups are difficult to run. They're expensive. And so I had a hypothesis, hey, I think we can do this through surveys. I started a company and that actually became my first successful startup, which is Venture Validator, which was a market research firm doing this process through surveys. Wait, so tell me a little bit more about this at first successful startup. Tell me kind of the lessons you learned. And also, how do most startups currently find product market? Again, what is product market fit? It's when you have a product offering that has the right feature set that fits a given target market's needs. But there's another thing about product market fit that people usually don't talk about because it's not in the, the name and it's, it's the price point. So it's at a price point that they're willing to pay for. If you decrease your price point, then you can increase your product market fit 
But that last thing that people don't talk about, is it in a market that is large enough to warrant investment, to warrant being a high growth startup? Currently, most people actually, they don't test product market fit. They go build their product, they go build MVP, and then they go measure usage and growth and see if it worked. And rarely does it actually work. And so they start pivoting and try to pivot before they run out of cash flow. And some of them make it. Most of them don't make it. As far as metrics here, you can always use the wow factor score. David Benetti has some really good work on a, a go-to-market fit metric, measuring where you're getting your use. There's another metric by Sean Ellis. It's called the Sean Ellis test. You're measuring people who have used your product. How disappointed would you be if you could no longer use this product? Somewhat disappointed, not disappointed, or very disappointed. And with all of these, it's, hey, you're predicting your product market fit with the wow factor test. All right, people have given you a high enough score. You pass that stage gate. Now go put some skin in the game. Go build an MVP. Go have them try your product. Hey, they've tried that. Use the Sean Ellis test to see, did you deliver on what you promised? And if you did, okay. Now, are they sharing this with other people? And are you getting more customers through this viral growth? If so, you've got go-to-market fit. And then that's where you really push and you really want to raise your money for the marketing. So there are three stage gates to go through. Although I will say most founders... They hope they just get lucky and they skate their way through. And a lot of them don't make it. So that's really interesting because I'm not even sure. Investors, they always ask, what's your traction? How many sales have you done? How many customers? All these things. Do they ever ask any of these product scores, any of these surveys that were done? Do you ever hear in pitch events or that any of the investors say, hey, what's your wow score? That's a really good question. So it depends on the education of that investor. And it also depends on what their their needs are for their portfolio companies. A lot of this testing should technically be done before you ever go to raise money. They're looking for traction. They're looking for evidence of product market fit. These metrics are more for founders to look at to say, hey, are we on the right track? And if we put three months of our burn rate towards this project, are we going to be in a place where we now have sales that prove we have traction. So this is a little bit more of an indicator beforehand. But yes, certainly there are investors who know what the wow factor score is, who can use that as, should I listen to your pitch deck? Because that's the other thing. We're judging predicted product market fit, but there are other elements of your business model. If you haven't sold units of your product and you haven't delivered it, you haven't proven that you know your channels. You haven't proven that you can do this profitably. So there are other things that aren't involved in that score that can absolutely go wrong. Though everything else can be right in your business model, you don't have a score, nothing else matters. Now, this question's in the left field there, but I want to ask it anyway. What about, I hear a lot about the NPR score. Mm -hmm. Is that, how accurate do you think that is? How would that play in for an early stage company? And for our audience at home, NPR is a net promoter. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Mm -hmm. net promoter score. But I'd love to hear your take on that. Yeah, I think it's a great score. You just have to know where it fits in. And and the hard part for startups is that it comes after they've experienced the value of your... If you don't have a product that they haven't been able to try, then you can't really get an accurate reading. So it really stacks up after MVP and you have a lovable product that, that they're willing to not just use, but they want to recommend. And that's definitely a valuable metric. Okay, now from having this idea to find in product market fit, How long should that entire process take and how many steps are involved? 
Yeah, that's tough. And obviously every startup team is different and every industry is different. It can be absolutely something as long as a year and a half, two years that you go through this process. I just went through it with Coconut VA, another startup I'm sure we'll get to later on. And we went through this process in a matter of two to three weeks, but it's because we've done the process again and again, and we put it through five surveys. We did $20,000 of market rate testing on it to then just flush out getting the metrics we need to get and then going forward with it. So all in all to implement what we tested, I would say probably took us two months, but that's really blazing fast. That's not to be expected. I would say the typical startup to get product market fit, probably looking at an 18 month journey to go build something that you have to go test with people to be able to get the traction where you should can go ahead and increase your sales. That's a big journey and a journey that with most startup ideas shouldn't even be started. Now with that though, there's gotta be some tips and tricks on how to accelerate that process. Really, you did it with Coconut VA in, in such a short amount of time. What advice can you give someone out there to really move that process forward? The first thing is customer discovery. You have to know your customer. And for us, we knew who our customer was. If you don't know your customer, that's the first thing you have to do is really jump in with a lot of interviews, do Zoom calls. It's not that hard to get customers on the phone. As founders, we're just scared of it. And it does take a lot of time. One thing is pick an industry or have teammates on your startup that know that industry so that you already know one side, which is the market. The next piece is going to be the product and knowing what product features they actually need to build. There, there are a lot of ways that you can do that easily. I think I even have some free training on my website that teaches you how to run these interviews to get your product market fit score. But if you can pivot just based off of a written product description, and find out, oh, this is not high enough, this is not high enough, this is not high enough. Within a matter of a couple of days, you can iterate things that if you were to build them out, would have taken you months and months to build. So many people talk about the MVP as a solution to startup waste. But MVPs, if you look at the average time, it takes four and a half months. That's a third of a year of resources built on doing an MVP. What if you built the wrong MVP for the wrong customer and you're selling at the wrong price? So go test that first, spend more time iterating there. And then when you're building something, you're building the right thing to go get the details that you never could get through an interview or a survey or a focus group that you only get through usage. I also am curious, how big does this focus group have to be? I'm not sure we never talk, ever talk numbers. Is it something that 10,000 people? Is it a global group if you plan on, on going abroad? Or can it be as small as 100, 200 people? on a university mm -hmm. campus? Yeah, that's a good question. I, there's two answers here. There's the academic answer for statistical significance, and then there's the real-life entrepreneur answer. The academic answer is that for 95% confidence interval, you technically want 395 responses. But that's great if you have an academic budget and you're going to write a peer-reviewed paper. That's not what entrepreneurs are trying to do. They're trying to de-risk a startup enough to the point where they're confident taking that leap and dealing with remaining risk that they can't de-risk. Real numbers wise, when we're doing surveys, 50, 100, and 200 is what we offer. 50 is the smallest you'd want to do if you're confident that you know who the target market is and that you've got a pretty good product offering. You want to just nail and get some confirmation that you're going the right place. 100 is typically what we refer people should do is because after 100, your score might waver by plus or minus half a point. 
that's not that big of a deal. It's going to cost you twice as much. Now go get 200 people. You'd only ever want to do something like 200 people is if you have the product offering, but you're not sure what customer it resonates with. So ideally what you're doing is you're screening 200 people that fit who you think are the target market, but they're going to have differences in the frequency of their problem and maybe their demographics, et cetera. And you're looking for the eights, the nines, the tens, the people who really rate your product high and you're grouping them and you're saying, Hey, here are the really high scorers. What do they have in common? And then you go for it there. You never really want to go spend money on 400 survey responses because I mean, that could have been spent on actually building your product so that you're getting actual feedback as opposed to this hypothetical asking type data. You were a adjunct professor at a university there. Can you tell, can you talk to us about what are your thoughts with the university system? Is it providing the education needed for startups? Is it producing startups? Is it, what are your thoughts on that? If you look at where entrepreneurial hubs, they're always around a lot of universities. If we look at why you have a lot of brilliant talent that has very low opportunity costs to go try something and fail. My biggest thing with universities is, yeah, they do provide the environment, but you really need to have the kids be spurred and be self-motivated to go take risks and really fail. So I, I got my degree in entrepreneurial management. The actual course curriculum was quite simple, quite easy. A lot of your grade depended on how you could pitch during the different group presentations. Now, there are some things that I, I saw. I saw a lot of the kids, they were just using it as a time to let me double down on my credits. Let me graduate a semester early because class is easy. They graduated and they don't have a startup. They don't have a, an extremely marketable skill. They're all soft skills. So it wasn't very helpful. The people that were successful were the ones that would enter the competitions in year after year. So for that thing, competitions and waving around $10,000, to students, I think is very motivating. And they have a lot of the resources there. I don't think that the classes that are just... If you just go through the curriculum and you didn't try to start your own thing outside of class, that it could ever be sufficient enough to produce an entrepreneur. But I think that's how it's supposed to be. It really, it's on you to take what you learn and double down on it. So how do you think the university systems could maybe adapt or improve to the needs of the current startup ecosystem? BYU is actually doing a pretty cool thing this year. It's called Sandbox, and they are getting students from across campus, especially a lot of the developers, uh, a lot of the designers, UX, UI, and they're putting together, and I think it's like a two-semester class where they're charged with building some type of a product. Whenever you get some cross skills coming in, I think it's great. One of the failures I think of, of certain entrepreneur programs is when they have the entrepreneur management students get together and work on business projects. Five, six people that all have soft skills, they can all sell something, but nobody can actually do something. When you start pairing up the doers and the strategists and you start getting an actual team, I think a lot of synergy can be there. The problem though, is that with a lot of university programs, they try to do large teams of six before there's ever any product market fit. So the issue is you can't, a startup's not a company. A startup cannot delegate in a pyramid from a top-down perspective. And this is, I think, probably the biggest failure of universities and of really any program that's trying to get together a group of people who have never had any type of startup experience and have them thrown into this idea and try to come out with something is that every time 
that I'm learning to try to validate a business model. I'm talking with people and I'm getting new information. And if you and I are on a team, I probably have to sit down with you for an hour a day and debrief you, Sean, on everything. You're going out and you're doing the same thing and you have to debrief me. If there's two people on our startup team, there's one line of communication that has to happen. At the moment, there's three lines of communication that have to happen for us to learn. Okay. If we go to four though, that's actually six lines of communication. You go to five, I think it's eight. You go to six, I think it's 12 or 13. So if you have six people, there's 13 lines of communication that have to go on. That's not feasible for it to happen. And it doesn't happen. So you cannot have a large team. You cannot build down uh, top-down pyramidic type structures until you have product market fit. Because every single day, every single hour, you learn something new that completely pivots the whole direction of your business model. And you can't be flexible on a large team. For situations like that, you're an adjunct professor. How much guidance do the professors give or do they let the teams pick who the CEO is, who the CFO, CTO, who the... I'm just curious because I would almost guess that, you know, here are six people and now it's 10 weeks of fighting. So <laughs> would yeah, everyone want to be the CEO? Okay. So. Yeah, I, I think that depending on the structure, sometimes there, there is no structure and no one actually puts it together. And, and what happens is group project type work. Two people do all the work and they lead it and they say, hey, it's easier for me to do it myself than to deal with these other four people who aren't working. Of course, that happens in the more structured programs. Some of these programs, they even, uh, there's scholarships where they pay you to be in the program. It'll be, you get $1,400 a semester to be in that program. And they're essentially buying your time saying that you're going to work on this 10 hours a week and contribute to this team. In those situations, they have more selected the people to be in the different roles. And so there is more unity on that, but there are issues that come out with, okay, what happens if somebody's worked for a year on this project, a semester has ended, three people want to continue they want to go raise money, make as a company, but three people want to go finish their degree and they don't want to give up their equity. That's a tricky situation. And then... With your background from the university side, from the entrepreneur side, what lessons did you learn? Did you take with you to this new company before we dive into that? What were some of the most valuable things that you learned that really prepped you for this one that you're working on now? Biggest thing that I learned is I, I was a lone wolf in college. In the entrepreneurship program, I always wanted to do things myself because I didn't want other people to slow me down. What I realized is I was really actually just bad at delegating. I never had a lot of experience delegating. So I thought, hey, let me just do it myself. That is one of the biggest things that entrepreneurs that I deal with today is they would rather do something themselves than go tell someone how to do this job, even if they have to do it repetitively, because to do it one more time, it's easier for them to do it themselves. Even though if they would have systematized it and passed it off, they would save hours and hours of their time. So then I got to ask what things can be systematized and actually. Before even that, everything. <laughs> I was just, I'm setting you up right now. Can you tell us what your current startup is, your current company, and kind of what the goals for it are before we dive into how everything can be systematized? <laughs> sure. What I'm spending most of my time on right now is, is Coconut VA. It's a virtual assistant business that helps entrepreneurs specifically delegate the tasks that are taking up what's happening after nine to five, what's happening on their weekends, what's happening on their vacations. A lot of these entrepreneurs cannot afford $4,000 a month for a US employee. And so they just do it themselves. And we're trying to help them realize that, hey, you can go get stellar talent for $10 an hour 
And you can actually have someone who can learn to wear all the hats that you wear on your team. How did I get to that point of knowing that you can find people in the Philippines who are able to work just as good as a $25 an hour employee? How did I get to the point where I could delegate? At Venture Validator, I had a fundamental belief. Everybody calls this consulting firm. I hated that. Um, actually, before Venture Validator, I had Wow Factor Consulting. That was the focus group company. And consulting doesn't, doesn't, is not scalable. It's not something that is sellable. And I initially at Wow Factor Consulting took pride in the fact that nobody knew how to do exactly what I did. It was a very difficult skill to, to moderate focus groups in the way that I moderate them to get the results that you can get. And I took pride in the fact that no one else could do that. And that was such a stupid and immature mistake to think, because really what I was taking pride in was the fact that I, I'm not scalable. When I went to Venture Validator, I had this completely different mindset. I said, okay, nobody else can run these surveys the way I run them. But the thing is, I'm an expert. Well, what is an expert? Does it mean that you have years and years of experience? No. What an expert is someone who can look at a situation and without even thinking, they can come up with an answer for how to uh, handle that situation. The thing is, every decision that we come up to as experts, we're going through some type of logic tree in our brain. But we've seen it so many times naturally that we don't have to think through that. We just know the answer. But if you can put down on paper, what is that system that you went through? You can now have a $10 an hour employee come to the same exact decision. I had that mentality of venture validator and we have a hundred piece process systems for how to do this work so that our VAs could go do all of the work that we're charging a whole lot more money for than what we're actually getting, getting charged by the VAs. I learned that literally every single decision that we made can be systematized. Every single one. If you give examples of how to do it, and, and so many people, they think, wow, that seems daunting. How do I make a process like that? I can't hand that off. It's because they're looking forward and they're saying, to start from scratch, how would I do that? And what I learned is, no, look backwards. After you do a task, you're gonna, every time you do a task, you're going to do it yourself because you don't want to have someone else do it because it, it sounds like a lot of work. But after you do that task, take five minutes to write down the steps that you just took. And you're probably going to write down 10 steps. It's not that hard to look backwards. Then give that task to somebody. I first practiced with unpaid interns. They're cheap. They're free, actually. It was a really good way to practice delegating. Uh, and then I started practicing with virtual assistants. Why I like virtual assistants better is because unpaid interns are a revolving door. You only get them free for a month and a half, and then you got to start paying them something. And then they go graduate and they go get hired to some other job who can actually afford to pay the rate that they're paying. You get the same talent for $10 an hour and you keep them forever. And it just makes a whole lot more sense for a business. What I learned is that you have them go through this process, they're going to make mistakes. And anytime they make mistakes, it's not their fault, it's your fault. You didn't write good enough instructions. So you go back to that and you insert two or three more steps. You get to the point where now that's all finished. That's all done. That, that's a perfect process. Adventure Validator, you come into our company day one. We have a project management system called Monday.com. You literally go through our onboarding process. And within 40 hours, you can become just as much of an expert as I am in doing product market fit reports, every single bit of the whole process. So for someone that's never worked with a VA, what are some of the biggest issues that they come across right off the bat? What's some tips or tricks that you can share with the onboarding process, really getting things ramped up? First off, get them from the right country, looking for the right skill set. We always choose the Philippines. Why? The Philippines, they, they speak very good American English. 
They watch lots of Netflix and lots of Hulu. So that's a big thing. The second thing is they have to have a very good English comprehension. We only cherry pick the top 1% of applicants. If you're ever frustrated talking with them, you shouldn't hire them. So having really good people first is your number one gate to making sure you're going to be successful. But even then, one of the problems that we have with our clients is they don't know what they can delegate. And it's not really what a question of what they can, it's, it's what they can't. There are very th- few things you cannot delegate, but it's understanding what is the right order to delegate things. So there's two questions to really ask yourself. One, what are the, the mundane things that I'm doing every single day that could save me a couple hours of, for example, are you doing lead gen? Are you going through and scraping data and trying to add these people on LinkedIn and send them messages? All that stuff is very mundane. It can easily be taught to someone else. The second thing that a lot of people forget about is how many things are on your to-do list that you just haven't gotten done because your 40-hour work week's already packed. Have you not run a blog and you know that you want to write a blog? Have you not started a podcast? So these all these other things that you can have your VA help you accomplish that gives them the tasks. But okay, here's the task list that I want. You look for what are the keystone skills that are needed in that VA. And I know I can teach them rest. A lot of our clients are looking for social media managers, but they're also looking for generalist VAs that can do customer service. Maybe they can do some cold calling. They can do some lead gen. So find out what is a skill that can be taught. Design eye. That's something that either you have or you don't, and you can make that better. But if you don't have it, you can't really get one. Okay. That's the keystone skill. These other ones, they're all teachable. And so just know that you can give them courses. You can give them training. Just you know how to do everything in your startup. You learned it somehow. It's probably YouTube. They can do the same thing. So a lot of people, when they're doing their startup, they're working 12, 14 hour days, seven days a week. Sounds like a lot of this stuff can be outsourced, but where would be step one? What items do most two person teams, three person teams, almost no budget, there's still just, I don't even know. I don't even know where to start, but I want your advice. A lot of this lead gen type things, we require that you have 20 hours a week of a virtual assistant. Like you said, setting up for success. You want a virtual assistant that doesn't have four bosses all working 10 hours a week because nobody really gets their full attention. Okay. It's, it's an $800 a month barrier to entry. One of the very first things is, okay, can we have them go produce more than $800 a month? And lead gen is a really good place. We have them go do LinkedIn sales navigator, save searches that we've set up with criteria to find clients or potential clients of ours. We have them go either sometimes through our LinkedIn profile or through their own and go add people who are in our potential client list and send them a message to see if they're open to talking about our business. Now we have an advantage. We're startups. We're not, we're inherently unique and there inherently is not another product offering just like ours. So we do stand out and your customer should be excited to get a message from you. So you write an email or, or sorry, a cold message in that message, that first connection request that would say something like, Hey, Sean, I noticed that you have a startup. I help startups find product market fit. I would love to connect and share more. If you accept that, I know that you're open to talking. If you reject that, well, I don't hear from you again. So it doesn't matter. So anybody who accepts it, then you send them your second message. And I'd probably send you a PDF that has a report of a recent startup that we did, something that fits your startup that you're currently doing and asking you some type of question. This is the messaging that I set up, but my virtual assistant actually runs this. So when you respond to it, they're the ones trying to get you to book an appointment. And if there's ever a situation where they have a question, 
They just slack me and I go and I take over. So that's a really big number one is lead gen. From there, I would say that social media posts, creating Canva designs is very much requested, responding to people, liking, following, commenting on social media. And then after that, just lots of back office admin, research tasks, creating systems, et cetera. And I just have to plug, since you said Canva, I have to tell our audience out there, if you've not listened to episode one of the Silicon Valley podcast, it's where I interviewed Melody Perkins, co-founder of Canva. And Eric, question for you. The future of construction, a startup team. Right now in Silicon Valley, you have the one tech guy, you have the one sales guy. They're both local here, Stanford, Berkeley graduate, who knows. What are the startup teams of the future? How do you see it? Oh my gosh, Americans are screwed. I'm sorry. You, you have to look at this. You have to see the trend that's coming. We have all these remote tools, but nobody's really working remote. And then COVID happens. And people realize, hey, I don't have to come to office, but I'm working in the same. Then they realize, I, I don't have to work in the same town. What if I move up north out of, what if I move out of state? It's even cheaper. So now you have people working remotely out of state. Well, it is not going to be long before employers start realizing, if I can have them work out of state, why don't I have them work out of country? And so now you're competing on a global scale with people who have just as good a skill sets as you, who are willing to work the same time zone as you. But you don't have to pay for payroll. You don't have to have any of the taxes involved. And they can be just as effective when you're working on different platforms like Zoom, like Volley, like Marco Polo, et cetera. You can't beat them, join them. That's my biggest thing is you're not going to stop this from happening. Uh, a lot of people, they hate the idea of outsourcing. The reality is for most startups, you're not actually outsourcing other jobs. You're outsourcing your own job. It's the things that you're doing after work and before. But regardless, even looking at a macro scale, it's going to happen. And in order to compete with people on a global scale, you need to be able to have a remote office environment. So there's some tools that you need to do to have for remote office. But I, I, I don't see people having offices. It's literally going to be... If you haven't tried Volley, Volley app, amazing. It's like Slack and Zoom had a baby. And you can send asynchronous videos to people. And you can watch them at times two speed. You get a text transcription of it. You can put people into groups. I am so much more productive at a work from home environment than I ever could be at an office environment because I can communicate to the right people way quicker and listen to their communication way quicker. And those people are charging me half or a third of the cost it would be for Americans. So if you don't see that vision and you don't catch on to it, by the time you do, it's going to be a little bit too late. And Eric, let's end on a, on a good note for our, our listeners here. <laughs> any last advice you'd recommend entrepreneurs out there? Any key takeaways before letting us know if anyone wants to find out more information about you, your company, what you're working on, what's the best way to go about doing that? Yeah. One thing I always say to startup founders who are trying to find product market fit, don't make your startup your baby. Don't be so connected to your first idea. You can be successful, but it doesn't have to be with that idea. Be more committed to the journey of finding success than this current episode that you're working on. And if you take your ego out of it and you start looking, how can I disprove my startup? You're going to start seeing things a lot more fairly and in a lot more unbiased light that will help you make the decisions and the pivots so that you go find product market fit. That's my venture validator spiel. And if you want to find us on, on how to find product market fit, venturevalidator.com is the easiest way. On the delegation part, okay. once you have product market fit, you need to create a scalable company. Everything that you can't automate, you need to delegate. 
And there are so many things that can increase your bandwidth if you find someone who is highly competent and qualified that you can delegate to. It takes practice. So connect yourselves with resources or companies that have low-cost trial periods, that have mentorship calls with the founder and help you grow to the point where you can now have this working remote, having outsourced employees that allow you to have what you need to do to compete in today's digital aid. And if you want to learn more about that, of course, you can always go to coconutva.com. And I'd love to hop on a call with you and see if it's right for your team. Fantastic. And once again, I want to thank Sam Wong for making this introduction. And for our audience out there, if uh, once your company finds product market fit, you're looking to be acquired. When I'm not doing this podcast, I'm a mid-market focused investment banker, mostly work on mergers, acquisitions, raising growth capital and little secondaries. All my contact information, LinkedIn and the website for this and show notes. So please reach out. And with that, Eric, I want to thank you for your time today on the Silicon Valley podcast. Perfect. Thanks, Sean. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.